Hi everyone, welcome. JJ Walsh or Joy here. Nice to connect with you once again. It's been a while since I've had the chance to talk to you and I appreciate you tuning in and having an interest in sustainability in Japan and the kinds of things that I'm very passionate about being a part of and、uh, trying to encourage businesses and people and myself. Uh, how to make better choices. We have better solutions out there. And uh, one, of the <clears throat> excuse me,、uh, one of the reasons I haven't been podcasting for a while, I had this horrendous cough.、Um, and it just really was hard to get over. And it's a kind of dry cough that just is very persistent. You just heard how I had to clear my throat a minute ago. So I still feel the remnants of, you, of it. And I've met so many visitors and、um, people around me here in Japan too who seem to have the same cold. So if you do, if you're suffering through something, I hope you can、uh, get better soon.、Uh, one of my personal remedies, which always made me feel a bit better and soothe the cough,、um, I really love ginger. And I would、uh, warm up some water, not too hot, and add ginger. Uh, sometimes with sugar, sometimes with honey,、um, but the raw ginger inside, or the Japanese version, the, is it called myoga,、um, that grows in my garden. And it has such a beautiful smell and fragrance, as well as really soothing on your throat. So there's my little、uh, DIY remedy for you, and I hope you are well and staying healthy. Now, today I wanted to talk about、uh, the article, the second part. Of the Fukushima Hope Tour article that I wrote.、Um, it, was it was a trip sponsored by All About Japan. I really appreciate their supporting me to get up there and、uh, be able to be a part of this consulting trip to really see if there is potential in this coastal Hamadori Coast、uh, area of Fukushima, as there, you know, it's been 12 years this year since the triple. Fukushima disaster of the earthquake, the tsunami, and then the nuclear power disaster that has really、uh, devastated the region and made it very difficult、uh, to, for people to move back. There's still an ongoing problem.、Uh, this year,、uh, they have announced TEPCO, who is overseeing the、uh, crippled. A nuclear power station、uh, has, they have stopped as much as they can, but they are still cooling it. And in cooling it, they are still collecting wastewater. And they, their plan is to release the wastewater into the ocean、uh, sometime this year. And when we were on this tour, of course, we met so many local people, especially fisher people, anybody who has work. Uh, connected in any way to the coast and the sea is very resistant and、uh, does not approve of this idea to release the wastewater. And of course,、um, this goes right into a lot of the, the issues、um, that I, I often think about when I do beach cleaning or talk to people who are talking about ocean conservation. Um, there is a mindset, I think many of us have, that 
the ocean is too big to fail that the ocean oh we can put our waste in there it doesn't matter it's it's big enough to absorb it and i think that may have been true for a time but researchers scientists and people who are looking at the problem with their eyes open in a very honest way tell us very clearly that that is not true the ocean is starting to fail and this uh, spells disaster for us all we will not survive uh, if the ocean fails not only for food from the ocean uh, we get a lot of seaweed salt uh, seafood fish we get a lot of things we need from the ocean but the ocean also absorbs so much carbon that if we destroy our biggest source, our biggest helper in Mother Nature, which is helping take uh, carbon out of the atmosphere, that's going to really accelerate um, our global warming and climate disasters and make this planet impossible to live on. So. We need to really think about uh, big um, projects like this, um, big decisions like this, and uh, think about, isn't there a better way? Isn't there another way? Instead of dumping this uh, wastewater, which has dangerous chemicals in it, uh, dumping it into the ocean, not only uh, putting people's livelihoods in danger, but uh, really damaging the ocean environment, which we are already damaging so much of. Um, so that, that was one of the really big things that I keep coming back to um, from this trip to Fukushima. And it is an upcoming issue um, that the Japanese government is, is really struggling with. And I hope they struggle with it a bit more and uh, really listen to experts and scientists around the world and uh, really try to make the best solution possible. Uh, one thing uh, we definitely saw on this tour around Fukushima Hamadori coast, uh, that whole coastal area, there is a lot of empty space. There is a lot of areas that won't be repopulated for generations. And isn't it better if you have to collect the wastewater somewhere to keep it on land where you can keep it away from our natural environment where it, it has a bad effect. We know it's going to have a bad effect and keep it away from people. That might be the better solution. There's no best answer. There's no best solution as far as I can see. But there is a lot of empty space and areas where people don't want to live and maybe shouldn't live for at least another couple generations. So yeah, big issues, uh, big discussions need to happen. And I'd be really interested to hear uh, what you think about that. So um, please drop me a line on social media or by email anytime. And uh, let's talk about it. I think it's worth talking about. And if you have any good links to news articles, or if you yourself have been to the area, this Fukushima area, I would love to hear your point of view. I think the more uh, viewpoints and insights that we have, the better. So this is uh, on my website, inboundambassador.com, about uh, Fukushima Hope Tour, part two. So this is part two 
of the Fukushima Hoktor along the coast, uh, which was filled with visions of a better future and modern day connections to highly valued traditions and heritage. Before I joined this Hope Fukushima tour, I was prepared to see many examples of local resilience and ongoing struggles even 12 years after the triple disaster, the earthquake, tsunami, nuclear disaster, and parallels to issues here in Hiroshima where I've been based uh, for most of my life now. <laughs> uh, most of my years in this world have now been in Japan and most of those years have been in Hiroshima. So I really feel very connected and uh, deep commitment to this area. So it was really nice to be in Fukushima and be able to see so many positive parallels between how Hiroshima has shown resilience and developed and how Fukushima is now uh, trying to develop in more positive, sustainable ways. I was surprised to also encounter many inspiring examples of innovation, entrepreneurship, and sustainable leadership that was completely unexpected. I could see examples of how Fukushima is repositioning itself as a forward-thinking destination with a focus on clean, sustainable, self-sufficient models for energy and food. There are also many examples of planning for the long-term health of local people and planet for new projects, businesses, and community development. Uh, here's a picture uh, from my Twitter feed while I was in Fukushima and uh, Fukushima Hope Tour with Asby Brown, who was our guide. And it was amazing to have sub such a deeply knowledgeable guide, not only about the Fukushima disaster and radiation testing, which he's been a part of with his SafeCast organization, safecast.org. Uh, if you search online, you can see uh, real-time radiation readings from Fukushima and all over Japan and now all over the world. So he was our guide and uh, we started the day two looking at renewable energy, uh, a solar and wind farm along the coast. And the issue of um, concrete fortification of the coast uh, to pr protect it from future tsunamis. Uh, it was an interesting issue that each area seemed to have tackled differently. And in this area, which had a row of windmills and then um, solar panels and uh, new trees were being planted in this area as a way to uh, protect the neighborhoods behind uh, in case there was another tsunami in the future but standing at this point where they had the wind farm and the solar and the newly planted tree plantations and then looking off into the distance along the coast you could see the fossil fuel power plants which are the most common uh, type of power being made in japan uh, made from oil and and coal and uh, we want to decrease this and so compared to what we're standing under with the wind and the solar and the trees, um, this looks like the better option for the future, the, the cleaner, renewable option. And then in the distance, we see the fossil fuels, which we're using now, and, but Fukushima area is becoming less and less dependent on. So it's, it's looking like progress, right? 
and then you look even further past the fossil fuel plants and what do you see? You see the Fukushima Daiichi and the Daini nuclear power plants, which are both offline now. And you think it is progress. Where I'm standing right now under these windmills next to the solar farm, next to the tree plantations, this feels like progress. This feels like what uh, they need for the people in this area to have a better future, cleaner future, but also justice. If something happens, if a disaster happens and something happens to these windmills and solar farms and trees, it's not going to be generations of stigma and generations to clean up and bring people back to the area. So that, to me, is the biggest argument against nuclear power. Use what we have now, start phasing it out, but don't build new ones because it's not the power of the future. That's my opinion. Um, but I think a lot of people are thinking along the same lines these days. And now one of the interesting people that was part of this Fukushima Hope tour uh, was Juiced Krult. And I hope I didn't just destroy his name. Sorry, Juiced. Uh, he's from, or Joost, sorry from the Netherlands and he works at Magonote Travel and he's working on the food camp project um, which he was telling me about while we were there and he's based in Fukushima and he's a really interesting guy and uh, I'm really excited about the food camp project especially because he was telling me um, they have a zero emissions truck that they're launching this year. So the concept of the food camp is they take people out um, or they get people to come and meet at a farm where the food is made, food and wine usually. They have these uh, gorgeous like high quality linen tablecloth tables in the field next to the farm uh, where everything's grown. And they have these food trucks which are helping um, to for the service of uh, feeding everyone and uh, bringing out all the food and drink and it's like a wonderful party at uh, the farm or at the place it's produced and it's just a wonderful idea um, so I'm going to talk to him on my talk show uh, in June if you want to tune in uh, on 6-6 June 6th at 10 a.m. if you want to join us live and then you'll be able to uh, watch or listen coming up in about a week after you'll be able to listen to the podcast version um, but if you want to join us online please uh, find me on the YouTube channel and you can add your comments and questions as we're live um, so he lives in Fukushima like I said and works for Magonote Travel on this food camp uh, project and for the food camp this year, they are adding a Toyota hydrogen fuel cell car to the fleet to offer zero emission dining and uh, added value to their events. And uh, when I was talking to him about it, it's a really great idea because uh, even if you just think about like a normal food truck, 
I, I love food truck culture. It's really fun, right? And you can uh, eat outside usually, and it's, it's really, I don't know, it's a great way for uh, new startups and chefs to, to start out and start uh, getting a fan base before they make an investment in a brick and mortar restaurant or cafe. Um, but one of the things that always puts me off is the sound of the engine or the sound of the generator and usually the smell of the emissions that go along with that. So fantastic to have a Toyota hydrogen fuel cell zero emission car, which is going to be part of this great food camp project. Um, so I'm excited to learn more about it when I talk to him. Um, but this was one of the many innovations I heard about on the Fukushima Hope tour that we were doing, uh, which really impressed me as a great model of innovation for other parts of Japan. Um, I often go to rural areas of Japan where they're trying to develop tourism. And one of the big hurdles is there are no restaurants, eateries, cafes, or facilities. And they don't have anyone locally who is interested in opening one up. And we always suggest you should collaborate with someone who has a food truck um, who can come to this area and local people um, would hopefully use the food truck and support them. But also it would be something, if it's done regularly, that would have that extra service appeal to visitors to make the effort to get out there. Because one of the big hurdles uh, if I'm going to drive out to the countryside or take a bus or a train out to the countryside or cycle out to the countryside, I'm not as excited to do that if I know there's not going to be anything to eat, anything to drink, and usually no shops open. Like I can see the sights. It's a beautiful day. But I, I want that added service. I want that added chance to go to a cafe or an eatery, right? But quite often, uh, places will just close randomly. Even Google Maps says it's open, but they're closed. Or they, they have really inconsistent opening times. And that makes it really hard for visitors because they don't want to make the effort to go all the way out there and then not have anything. Um, of course, you can bring your own food and drink, but it's not really the same. So, one of the things we often suggest is if you don't have local people who could open up a shop or have a cafe, uh, why not invite some food truck people? Give them some support. Give them a little bit of funding and see if it can develop from there. I like that idea. Um, another thing about the renewable energy. So the first stop, uh, we saw the renewable energy farms. And Asby was talking about how although the people in the communities around the nuclear power plants, uh, when they were built years and years ago, they did benefit from the creation of jobs and the subsidies that came from the creation of Daiichi and Daini, um, the plants that were built by TEPCO. But the area never benefited from the energy that the plants created. All of the energy was shipped to Tokyo. Yet the problems created by the nuclear power is a burden of the local people. As Asby Brown said, they really suffered more than they gained. It's inspiring to see that there's a lot of momentum in Fukushima to make a positive choice of future energy development 
using renewable energy. Uh, after the wind and solar farm and the newly planted tree farms that we saw, uh, we went to the Soma Museum where we saw a lot of Soma horse heritage. Uh, our first visit, uh, Minami Soma Museum, was a look back in time beyond the Fukushima disaster, which gave us a longer-term perspective of Japanese culture and traditions in the area. The area has long been known for its wild horses, which led to a unique horsey culture. We didn't have a chance to do any horse riding, but learned about the no, uh, Soma Nomaoi Festival, which is held each year in July, when horse riders from the region gather for events that showcase their riding skills, as well as connection to the area's history. I was interested to hear that many who take part in the Soma uh, Oi Festival, including women in recent years, yay, wear the family crests and riding costumes of their ancestors as they take part in the events. It was also surprising for me to learn that there were wild horses in this area of Japan long ago. Wouldn't that be amazing to see wild horses in Japan? I wonder if we could ever bring it back. I uh, interviewed Alex uh, K.T. Martin years ago, uh, and he talked about uh, the movement amongst environmentalists uh, to bring back the Japanese wolf and some people who said that they had had sightings of the wolf. And that was a fascinating discussion. I'll put a link in the show notes below. Um, but that whole idea that there used to be wild wolves, which would be a predator to keep deer and um, tanuki and uh, inushishi, the wild boar and the deer in, in check, and maybe even monkeys in check. And those populations are, are now out of control, booming. There's way too many of them. And uh, creating lots of problems for farmers and, and residents in rural communities. Um, but then when I went to this Minami Soma Museum and learning that there used to be wild horses too. Oh my gosh. Wow. Wouldn't that be amazing to see wild horses? Uh, guests of mine who came from America said that there are some areas uh, in North America which have wild horses still. I would love to see that someday. Um, so we stopped for lunch in a town uh, not far from the museum, and it was wonderful to see some of the traditional houses and shops which have been preserved. Uh, so many of the areas we saw in Fukushima were empty lots where towns used to be, uh, which made it easier for them to decrease radiation levels. They took the topsoil off and put it into bags, another uh, waste storage problem for future generations to deal with. Uh, but so hard to repopulate when all the buildings are gone and it's just empty lots. That's a much bigger ask than bringing people back and having the frame of something to work with, having the plumbing already installed, having the sewage system. When you take everything away, it actually makes it really hard to bring people back to the towns to repopulate. In one of the old buildings, uh, we ate soba and tempura, and the shop had gorgeous rama, wooden carvings, uh, usually found at the top of old houses, at the top of the rooms on the side. 
Uh, they also, this little cafe that we ate at for tempura had beautiful antiques and a small garden and it was really lovely uh, soba and tempura lunch. And I was really grateful to the All About Japan staff who brought a kombu kelp soup stuck for me uh, so that I would be able to enjoy the soba as a vegetarian vegan um, and also be able to enjoy the meal because usually the stock is made from fish um, so not very vegan vegetarian friendly um, but with a bit of um, planning if you bring your own soup stock <laughs> you can eat at any no noodle shop in Japan um, I heard that Beyonce carries her own hot sauce. So whenever I carry my own soup stock, I feel a little bit of kindred spirit with Beyonce somehow. <laughs> um, now, transparency and food safety uh, was our next point of call as we went to the community testing center. And being able to enjoy the local food was a concern before I made this trip. Not just the difficulties of finding vegetarian options, which is always a hurdle in Japan, but of course any trip to Fukushima makes people a little bit anxious about food safety. This was the reason for our next visit to a community food safety testing facility where we met Kobayashi Takenori, one of the founders of the Todoke Dori group. Kobayashi-san has long been a local activist and community builder in the area who told us that the Todoke Dori group was actually made to support Chernobyl and found new relevance after the 3-11 disaster here in Fukushima in the, Tokyo, in the Tohoku area. This facility started operating in 2012 to support local residents by providing straightforward information about radiation monitoring and providing food testing services. Kobayashi-san gave us information about how radiation levels shifted over time on detailed maps he had of the area. We, would also, uh, we were also given a demonstration of how the food uh, could be tested by individual residents who grew or foraged their own food without the need to cut it up. Commercial agri agriculture is officially tested, but individuals also need a place to check the safety of their homegrown, homegrown or food uh, harvested from the forest uh, to have that peace of mind. I hear the, the chime of the laundry behind me. <laughs> Did you hear the beeping? There's a lovely little beeps in Japanese houses. Um, so the next stop after the food testing lab, uh, we went to the Innovation, Entrepreneurship and Startup Hub in Odaka. Our next stop was called Pioneer Village, where we heard of the efforts of the founder, Tomoyuki Wada, and how his aim to create 100 new startups in the town um, as a way to bring life back uh, to this part of Minamisoma in uh, Fukushima. And in the video interview I came across with Tomoyuki Wada, I found it interesting when he said it was actually easier in some ways to start up with new ideas because you were starting from nothing after the disaster. 
he was uh, uh, talking about his ambitious mission for revival of the town with 100 new startups. Um, but it's a clear aim that has really good potential for success. And it's a, a great way to generate interest and get some media attention too. But this idea that he had about uh, easier to start up when you're starting from nothing, I think that's the idea that Toyota has when they're, they're trying to start from an empty lot to make the future sustainable city called Woven City, not far from Mount Fuji. Um, I think in some ways this Fukushima area has more hurdles because they have nothing uh, like empty lots like I was talking about. But uh, when they have something, when they have the husk of old buildings to start from, some foundation to start from, that actually makes it easier. And we saw that at work when we visited one of the hundred startups that he helped get started, uh, which was called Hakoba a very innovative craft sake brewery uh, right there in the Pi Pioneer Village area. So it was just short walk from there, also in Odaka. Now, Hakoba Craft Sake Brewery was founded by a young entrepreneur named Sato Taisuke, who was inspired by Brooklyn, New York City innovators who were blending craft beer techniques with sake brewing techniques. So the brewery, shop, and cafe is built in a beautifully renovated old house in the town of Odaka. It's actually uh, one of Wada, the, uh, the founder of the Pioneer Village, one of his family's uh, old houses that they renovated, and it's absolutely gorgeous. I loved hearing the founder talk, uh, Sato-san, the founder talk of his passion for learning the craft of uh, this interesting combination between beer and sake, and then starting this new innovative business. I think there's so much we can learn from this kind of attitude. Uh, you can see a nice interview with Sato-san here, so I'll put it in the show notes uh, so you can see it from the Fukushima Prefectural website. So the interview is in Japanese, but it has really good English subtitles. On the second night, we stayed at the community hub of Odaka Activism and Hospitality at the Futaba Ryokan, a guest house near Odaka Station, which is run by the effervescent Kobayashi couple. So we met uh, Kobayashi-san at the radiation monitoring uh, community center earlier in the day. And then later that same day, we met uh, Kobayashi-san, the wife in, of the couple who uh, runs the guest house. And uh, they're both such an amazing couple and uh, really such an asset to the community as well as for visitors. They're the reason you want to go there. And really warm hospitality. And at their ryokan, Futabaya ryokan, we saw one of the first dedicated uh, radiation monitors which were put there by the SafeCast organization. So Asby Brown had a great connection uh, with the Kobayashi family and uh, it was nice to be there with him and have the introduction through Asby. Uh, this guest house was the first to install the SafeCast radiation monitors on it to provide data to local residents as well as to those around Japan and the world who wanted more information about radiation 
after the 311 disaster. And uh, like the Kobayashis and many people there talked about, they wanted their own data collected independently to correlate to the official government data so that there was more a sense of, of trust that they could uh, kind of check what was official information because there was so much distrust in the official uh, line that was given, especially right after the disaster. Uh, the Another picture from Twitter here showing lots of tasty food at the Futabaya Ryokan, even for me as a vegetarian vegan, uh, they treated me very well and I ate uh, lots of beautiful, lovely, tasty, healthy food. So I was very happy. Uh, the town of Odaka seems to be a slowly rebuilding and uh, re-thriving. Can I say re-thriving? Thriving again? How do we just say that? <laughs> As um, the town is coming back to life. So that was so nice to see. But there are still a lot of empty spaces in between the rows of houses. You have these long empty spaces. Uh, even after 12 years, uh, there's no sign that people are going to rebuild in those spaces quite yet. On the third and last day, one of the most impressive stops on the tour was visiting the wall murals and renovation projects in the town of Futaba, not far away from Odaka, where we stayed overnight. And this area is still part of the exclusion zone, um, but it showed how the power of art, design, and innovation really helps with revival. They had big murals on the walls in this town of Futaba uh, with local people's faces. So the local people who had lived in these houses and ran businesses in these buildings, they gave permission to the artists to have their face on the side. And I think as we talk about Fukushima, it's easy to get distracted and focus only on statistics and the technicals of how much radiation exists or how many buildings are damaged, when in fact the most essential part of the story is the story of local people, these people on the walls, and how we can do right by them, or how we can bring the human face out, the human experience out in the Fukushima story. It's not just uh, radiation and statistics. Um, so that in this Futaba mural town, that really came to light for sure. Uh, next, the Museum of Disaster and Heritage in Tomioka. So we went to the museum in Tomioka, which was really well done and had a lot of interesting information about how the local area people really struggled with the tsunami evacuation and then they were kept out of the town because of the radiation um, troubles and uh, part of the exclusion zone. And so they ended up uh, evacuating quickly because of the tsunami and then they couldn't go back for such a long time. Um, extended living in emergency shelters, which caused a lot of stress, of course, your life as you know it is over. It was also uh, going to this museum was such a great chance to learn about the heritage 
and stories of the area many years before 311. So like the Soma, Minami Soma Museum we went to and learned about the horses and the Yayoi period, thousands of years before. Uh, it was also great to learn about this area and the historical and traditional heritage of the local environment. Um, there was this really interesting story about how one guy uh, wanted to have easier access for the fishing boats and he carved through a cave to make it easier access for the fishing boats and spent year his whole life uh, carving through. That's just an incredible story. I really enjoyed that. But it was also a museum where they showed a lot of um, the damage from the tsunami talked very honestly about the evacuation and the dangers from uh, radiation as they were evacuating and uh, in the emergency shelter. So it was a very important and well done museum. I think we definitely need good information documenting uh, what happened and what is still happening so that we can have an honest dialogue and people can make uh, decisions based on uh, data and rational judgments and the truth instead of um, propaganda or things that aren't really true. Uh, we ended the tour with a lovely Italian lunch at Wonder Tomato and a pottery workshop at the Kondo Pottery and Ceramics Gallery where we saw a beautiful kiln and had a pottery workshop there. Um, and that was interesting to see because they had relocated uh, from another area and started again in this new area and very talented uh, potter to see the work of the potters at this gallery and be able to work with one of the potters to make our very novice little attempt at pottery but it was lots of fun. Uh, overall the Fukushima Hope Tour opened my eyes in many ways uh, to inspiring projects and entrepreneurs uh, which are doing really interesting things happening along this Hamadori coastline. I would really love to go back again next year to see how the places are developing. How are the entrepreneurs, uh, are they finding support? Are they bringing in more people? Um, are they feeling uh, very positive about the future? Or is there not enough momentum yet to really feel a sense of recovery. So I think uh, going back in a year's time, it would be really interesting. But I was surprised and excited uh, to be able to see so much of the real Fukushima and real people in Fukushima for myself. Uh, left a really deep impression and I've been thinking about it a lot. Uh, even now, months later, I'm still talking about ideas, startups, people, and projects which I saw on this trip and how they might work in other parts of Japan as well. So when I do consulting work all over Japan, I have all these great uh, examples from the places and the people and the uh, businesses that I saw in Fukushima. So it was really inspiring. Um, the examples of sustainable innovation and business, as well as local characteristics of resilience, community building, hospitality, these are all key features of what we need in society no matter where we are. 
These are also features that will draw in people like me who are focused on sustainable solutions to become loyal fans of the area and its people. So honest, transparent, balanced tours of Fukushima. I think if we're talking about how effective um, this consulting trip was in trying this kind of tour in the future, I think uh, what I would say is one of the key points of success for a tour like this is going to be the wonderful insights that you get from a good guide. And we were so lucky to have the amazing Asby Brown uh, as a guide who had so much experience and information about the area, but also he had such amazing connections and really cared about uh, what was happening to the local people and be able to pass that information on to us was very valuable. So I think in terms of how successful future tours can be, uh, you definitely need local guides uh, to take visitors on tours like this and be able to connect them uh, in an honest and real and uh, interesting way to local people as well as the information, but have a more balanced view of the past disaster, the ongoing challenges, and future hope. In that way, uh, it's a very key point of developing attractive and sustainable tourism in Fukushima, I think. Thanks so much for listening. I would love to hear uh, your point of view. What did you think of that? And uh, yeah, reach out through social media or drop me an email on inboundambassador at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Have a great day. See you next time. All of you left a certain mark on me. Don't ever change. I love you just the way you are. So It's all working out so far.